We all owe them, but very few of us know them. They are the men and women of our military and first responder communities. And these are their stories. American Warrior Radio is on the air. Welcome to American Warrior Radio, ladies and gentlemen. This is your host, Ben Bueller-Garcia. We're coming to you from the Four Patriots Studios. At Four Patriots, they support freedom and self-reliance, and they give you family the tools to do so. Visit fourpatriots.com. That's the number four patriots.com and check out their wide selection of uh, goods that they offer to help your families. Don't forget to use the code WARRIOR to get a 10% discount off your first order. Many of us have had bad days. That's just a part of life. But few of us will have a blown up by an IED kind of bad day. All of us face challenges in life and moments of doubt. But few of us will face rebuilding our lives and finding new purpose after becoming blind and deaf. In December of 2011, in Afghanistan, Aaron Ailes' life went dark. He didn't curl up into a ball. He's climbed mountains, he's gone whitewater kayaking, and run the Boston Marathon. Twice. He also started and is growing a successful company, EOD, Extraordinary Delights. He joins us today. Aaron, welcome to American Warrior Radio. Thanks for having me, Ben. So I got an email from you, and the message line was, do you want to talk about turning tragedy into triumph? Well, sure. Yes, I do. But I can tell you, we get about three to four inquiries for guests a day. Initially, it's kind of like, well, I like the message line, but what makes you so special? And then I got to the line where it said, I'm a former EOD tech who lost his vision and hearing after an explosion. And I thought, holy cow, let's get this guy on as, as soon as possible. So I'm, I looked into your story, and I immediately asked to set a date, and we're so glad to be getting this done. Well, uh, I'm honored to be on the show, and of course, my friendship comes with chocolate. <laughs> we'll get to that. We'll get to that, brother. You first joined the Navy as a cook, Aaron, in 1999, as I understand it, and they shipped you off to Italy, which is not bad duty, I would guess. But, of course, being the Navy, the first thing they did with this trained cook was to make you a clerk in a barracks for two years. Well, they, what they didn't tell me at the time when I went to Navy cooking school was that the Navy treated uh, the cooks well, a lot like uh, hotel restaurant management on the civilian side. So when I got off the plane in Italy, and they asked where I would be cooking, and said, oh, no, no, that's when you're on the ship. On on shore duty, we have civilians running the, the dining facilities. So you'll be sitting the night watch, because you're the new guy, and at the front desk, handing out pillows and taking in trouble call tickets. That doesn't sound too exciting, Aaron, or, or, or too fulfilling. Well, you know, I worked my way up from the answer of the phones at night to running the maintenance department. Definitely not a glamorous job. However, I spent most of my days escorting Italian local national public works guys through the, the barracks, repairing faucets and light bulbs and stuff like that. But the entire time, I used the opportunity to start phoning up on my Italian language skills. Of course, I was learning from roughnecks, so it was a bunch of flying and bastardized words. And so anytime I traveled around Italy and I tried to speak my Napolitan lingo, they had to look at me funny because it definitely wasn't both Italian. All the same, I loved my time in Italy, so two years on shore working for the barracks and enjoying my off time just hanging up my uniform and, you know, learning about the culture and cuisine and history of Italy. 
And then two years later, Dream billet as a Navy cook and started working for Commander of the Sixth Fleet in Gaeta, Italy. Just a 45-minute move from one base to another on board the ship. And I got to cook for the, the commander and his top brass. That was, was pretty fantastic. So you went from zero to 100, and, and boy, I can't think of a better place to learn recipes. Well, maybe a few, but in Italy, that's pretty darn good. Well, you know, during my off time at the barracks, I'd actually volunteer for the base commander when he threw parties and receptions. So when it came time for me to TCS or move from one job to the next, I was requesting a special duty assignment. But my request also came with a letter of recommendation from the base commander. So I got my foot in the door, so to speak. I also, by that time, I joined the military in the first place because I needed some of those internal core values, work ethic, and a little bit of ambition and direction. And I got that. And during my time in Italy, not only did I get those internal core values, but I just loved being a sailor, loved my service and what that meant, and being a part of something bigger than just myself. So I believe my leadership saw that and decided that they wanted to put me in a position where I could really shine. So how does a Navy cook end up being an EOD guy? <laughs> I tell people, oh, my God, my first confirmed kill with a cheesecake and then decided I wanted to start saving lives instead. But uh, the truth is, you know, like, I, like you said, I joined in 1999 at time of peace. But yeah, the World Trade Center happened while I was in Italy. And soon, we found ourselves fighting two leader operations in Iraq and Afghanistan. And despite the fact that, you know, I was working for the commander and every job is important, I was still cooking. Now, I enjoyed that, and I really did appreciate all my time the past few years working and living in Italy. I was still watching this war play out on the major news outlets on the television aboard the ship, floating around the Mediterranean. And I really felt a calling to use my abilities, my skills, my intellect, my creativity to a better use. So I didn't, I didn't feel like I wasn't gainfully employed or maximizing my employment as a Navy cook. So I volunteered to deploy to Afghanistan. I was still cooking, but this time I was uh, in Afghanistan, running an army chow hall, and then I went from cooking for the admiral at his, you know, 35 top brass to hundreds of NATO troops, and that's when I met the EOD techs. There was a team on the base, and when I struck up a conversation, and I learned all about their life-saving job, the tight-knit brotherhood, demanding and technical job that they do perform, Everything about it just told me this is exactly what I need to do. How does that, I, I'm just a dumb civilian, Aaron, but how does that work? You just put in your paperwork and they say, yeah, come on board, we'll train you, and let's go? Well, it wasn't as simple as that. No, I did put in my request to go from Navy cook to Navy bone technician, but uh, it was it was summarily denied. Uh, I guess they liked my cooking far too much. <laughs> But the truth was that there, it, was a, it was a couple of reasons. One is that at the time, EOD wasn't a rate or MOS uh, 
like culinary specialists and CS. And it was a specialization, it was a qualification. So it was like a, a suffix behind a name, not quite a title. And they were they only took certain source jobs around the Navy. So if you were, you were bosun's mate or master at arms, you could become an EOD tech. They just weren't taking culinary specialists into the EOD field. Uh, everything can be wavered. Nobody wants to tell you. Uh, but the other thing was that I was a petty, petty officer second class, and my job and rank were undermanned, and the next rank up was overmanned. So not only were they not going to let me go EOD, they weren't going to let me get out of that rank or job. So when my time in Afghanistan was up, I went back stateside, and soon thereafter, my contract was nearing its expiration date. So it was starting to either re-enlist or get out. I decided to hang up one uniform and go enlist it with another uniform. I went over to the Army recruiter, and I handed him my service record and said, I'm going Iraq. I want to go EOD. And they welcomed me. Right <laughs> in. Great. Yeah, come on board. Step away with us the Navy term. Aaron, when we come back, I'd like to talk and have you tell our listeners about that fateful day uh, in December of 2011 and chat more about just your real, truly, I mean this, sir, your, your real inspirational story. Ladies and gentlemen, this is your host, Ben Bueller Garcia. Don't forget to check out EODFudge.com. That's EODFudge.com. You'll hear more about that when we come back. Stick around. Welcome back to American Warrior Radio, ladies and gentlemen. This is your host, Ben Bueller-Garcia. We're speaking with Aaron Hale. Aaron actually served in both the Navy and the Army. His last assignment was he is an EOD technician. That's explosive ordnance disposal. Uh, you've probably seen that. There's been several films. Not always accurate, I'm guessing. But, uh, Aaron, tell us about, you know, in the introduction I talked about that day where your world literally went black. Tell us about what happened there in the Kandahar province of Afghanistan. I've been in uh, the Army now for just a couple of years, and I was put a little fast-tracked. I was coming in with the same rank. I'd left the Navy, just a different title. As a sergeant, I was expected to become a team leader very quickly. So I deployed once to Iraq, and then once more, I went to Afghanistan. The second time around, I had a completely different role. This time as a team leader, the guy who actually gets in the bomb suit makes that long, lonely walk. So it was about eight months into the 12 months rotation. And I'd just taken two weeks of R&R you know, leave back to the United States. I got to see my firstborn son turn one. Got to witness the whole family get together for Thanksgiving. And Thanksgiving and the holidays becomes a, a pretty special, even more special uh, meaning in our family. So I got to gather all these beautiful faces together for one last amazing, perfect page in the, the photo album in my head. And I was right back to the battle space, and my team would pick me up in our armored truck, and we jumped into a 
supply convoy heading from the airfield out to our small area of operation where we were supporting uh, the cavalry scouts. And along the way, the convoy commander calls back and says there's a suspicious uh, item in the side of the road. Could we get to work? Well, of course, you know, we weren't really on duty. We were just hitching a ride with this convoy, but, you know, the nearest QRF would take you know, an hour or longer just to get out there. So, of course, no time like the president, and we're ready and able to go. So I tossed the luggage off the robot, the robot out of the truck, and it found what we found. We were we were finding 97% of the time was just a oil jug, like a vegetable oil container with homemade explosives, a 9-volt battery, a couple pieces of plywood and some lamp cord to put it all together. A very simple, rudimentary, very, very low-tech IED, but it was effective because of how low-tech it was and how easily they could put one together and bury it in the dirt. Uh, our robot made short work of it, but I wanted to make sure that we could uh, get as much evidence as we possibly could so that if you consider the timeline, we wanted to get what we call left of the boom. We wanted to get the emplacer, the bomb maker, the uh, financer, all those people. So grabbing this evidence to send up to our exploitation cell. And they can send all the evidence off to FBI, ATF, DEA, and all those people. On my way, I was making the, the approach. And I had my metal detector in one hand and my evidence kit in the other. And about 20 meters from the device, there was a secondary device that hadn't yet been detected. It hunted me into the air and I laid on my knees and elbows. I was still conscious, not totally lucid, because it definitely rang my bell, but the lights had gone out. Uh, uh, first thing I did was wiggle my knees and elbows and fingers and toes and make sure everything was still in the, where it was supposed to be. And then I reached up to fix my helmet because I thought it had just gone over my face to find out that it was completely gone. And that's when I thought, oh, no, this is really bad. My first sergeant's going to kill me for losing that thing. <laughs> and the next thing I thought was, yeah, I'd actually taken some damage and I couldn't say there was still a battle going on. You know, there were things happening all around me. And that's one of the jobs that he would eat team leaders to make sure that there's situational awareness. And I was thinking, there's going to be a complex attack. My team members are supposed to be uh, clearing a path into that standard operating procedure. The you know team leader that's down, they got to clear a path so the medics can get me out. But I was still more or less conscious, and there could possibly be an ambush, you know, small arms attack, or whatnot. And I didn't want anybody coming into a hazardous area. I stood up and I started walking back towards the truck without knowing even where the truck was anymore. I was just kind of wandering around the combat zone. Finally, my team grabbed me and dragged me back to the safe area. Medics got a hold of me and started fixing me up. And within minutes, I was back in a medevac chopper heading towards the airfield I just left. Were you wearing the bomb suit at the time, Aaron, or not? I was not. Okay. 
it doesn't make sense to jump into a bomb suit every time there's something unidentified. But once there's a known threat, then we will either you make the first approach with a robot or in a bomb suit. And what I've done is verified the hazardous components that were separated. I think it was no longer, quote unquote, hazardous. I didn't need to be in a bomb suit to make the next approach, just to grab evidence and come back. And I'm not going to wear a bomb suit on the battlefield for anything that might still be buried. So there really was no call to be in a bomb suit. I was in my standard protective gear, helmet. I wear, you know, the eye protection, body armor, like every other soldier out there. I, I can't imagine being one of your comrades and, and basically, I'm guessing you looked kind of a fright there, Aaron. And so you lost, immediately you lost both eyes. Every bone in your face is broken. Both your eardrums are blown out. And then, as I understand it, there was some shrapnel that just barely missed your, your artery. It, it had cracked my skull. So I was, I was making spinal fluid right out of my nose. And parts of my metal detector, hard plastic bakelite, had actually hit my jawline, went along the head stout, just millimeters from my carotid artery. So it was a miracle. Uh, I didn't die. I stroke out right there. But amazingly enough, even though the thing was buried just beneath me, uh, the blast left me virtually untouched from my neck down. There's a little piece of wood splinter from the plywood in my hand and a little bit of peppering in my leg. Everything else was intact. You know, we, we hill boys do have thick heads, so it couldn't have hit me in a better place. I was uh, left with, like I said, all my fingers and toes intact. How long was it then before you were back in the United States? It took about 48 hours. They flew me up to Landstuhl Hospital in Germany and wanted to keep me under observation for 24 hours just because of the TBI, the brain swelling, and they wanted to make sure that I'd be able to you know, survive uh, and handle the high-altitude flight across the Atlantic. But I was in Bethesda, Maryland, within 48 hours of the blast. Okay. Aaron, when we come back, I want to talk about that road from tragedy to triumph and just what an amazing story this turned into. A lot of folks, Aaron might have curled up into a little ball, but you decided that if you're going to be a blind man, you want to be the best damn blind man you can be. Ladies and gentlemen, this is your host, Ben Buehler-Garcia. We'll be back with more from Aaron Hale. Stick around. Welcome back to American Warrior Radio, ladies and gentlemen. This is your host, Ben Buehler-Garcia. We're coming to you from the Four Patriots studio. At Four Patriots, they champion freedom and self-reliance, and they give your family the tools to do so. Visit fourpatriots.com. That's the numeral four, patriots.com. And don't forget to use the discount code WARRIOR for 10% off your first order. We're speaking with Aaron Hale. Aaron is a former EOD, Explosive Ordnance Disposal Technician, who was badly injured by an explosion in Afghanistan. Basically, it was blind immediately lots of damage to his skull and Aaron so you come back you're being treated as much as they can but I'm guessing right away the doctor's like you're never going to see again I mean that seemed pretty obvious 
it was a bit of a whirlwind in the first few hours and days. And Walter Reed and Bethesda, Maryland. Doctors and nurses coming and going. Social workers and army administration and tons of paperwork. And my family came in from all points. And, of course, you're right on the beltway. So there were servants and elected officials coming in and shaking hands. And it was just a blur. They did try to repair one of my eyes. One was too far gone. But that didn't take, of course. When the death settled and all the people left for the evening and I was there in my hospital bed contemplating, you know, what really was going on. Uh, it, was, it was definitely a transition point. And what ifs and why me's and you know, how could this possibly have happened to me type of things. Those questions keep popping in my head. And I would just, I thought of my family. And I thought of my fellow soldiers. And I thought about all those brave warriors that were sharing this unit in this hospital with me, going through their own battles, their own personal war back here at home. And I just realized that they just like, I don't own a monopoly on pain, and I can't change what's happened. So... If I can't change what happened, I might as well make the best of what I can do and affect what I, I can. I'm still a father, a husband, son, brother, soldier. I love how uh, General Mahamas said it in Call Sign Chaos. And things being hard were never a good excuse for mission failure. And even though I'm a soldier, I think it's also true. So I knew it was going to be hard the road ahead, but I got to work. Aaron, have you ever heard of Sergeant Travis Mills, Staff Sergeant Travis Mills? Oh, you know, I know of him. I don't think we've ever had the pleasure of meeting. He, he was on the show several years ago, and he was also involved in IED blast. He became a, made him a quadruple mm -hmm. amputee. And I'll never forget on the show he said, look, I am not wounded. I was wounded. Now I'm a recalibrated soldier. And I thought that was just such a wonderful phrase, and it made me, you know, looking into your story, it made me think of you and Travis and that, that commonality, just because now, you know, here's here's Aaron out there climbing mountains and kayaking and, and running marathons, but fate was not quite done with you. It decided to throw another 50-pound chunk of concrete in your, in your rucksack. Uh, three years down the road, 2015, meningitis. That's an inspiring thought. In fact, it also reminds me of uh, Jason Redman. Yes. He had been injured, and he put up just something like a big poster board right in that hospital. He said, don't feel sorry for me. I'm coming back. I'm a fighter. Yeah. With the meningitis now, you're, you're not only blind, but that basically took what was left of your hearing away. Um, and still, Aaron's not giving up. Well, you know, I lost some of my hearing due to the blast, of course, uh, but uh, it had more or less restored. Uh, there was quite a bit of damage on my right side because that's where the blast had come from, but uh, I could still hear at that time. I went to the uh, Blind Rehabilitation Center in, in Augusta, Georgia, at the VA hospital, and I learned how to use the and all the accessibility devices like talking computer and phone and I started 
you know, looking up ways to stay off the couch. <laughs> and how does blind? How do how do you become a good blind person? How do you get good at being blind? And I just looked for examples. I found Eric Weinmayer as the first blind person to climb Mount Everest, and Lonnie Bedwell is the first blind person to kayak the entire Grand Canyon. And I sought these guys out. I went climbing with Eric, uh, and I went kayaking with Lonnie. And I just spoke to Lonnie uh, over the weekend, who has just completed his summit of Mount Everest uh, last week. So these are incredible individuals, also totally blind, and I have no excuse uh, not to be able to do what I, I can. And it was four years later, 2015, when I just climbed at 14,000-foot peaks in the same day. I went hunting in Texas for the first time as a blind person. I went kayaking again with Lonnie, and I ran the Boston Marathon for the first time. And I was just coming off a, a flight from a speaking event where I was feeling pretty fatigued and extremely dizzy. So I laid down for an hour, woke up. I don't know how long after, with the splitting, I don't know, headache, migraine, and just no, nothing, no words I've ever come up with does, does it justice. You know, something was destroying the inside of my head. And as it turns out, I contracted bacterial meningitis, went right back to the hospital. And in a matter over the course of a few days, the bacteria stole what was left of my hearing that the bomb hadn't taken. It nearly killed me. Uh, I survived, but now I was totally blind and totally deaf. I was trapped in my body. That's what I felt. Yeah, my whole world ended at my fingertips. I couldn't get a message in. I thought at that time maybe it would have been a good idea to learn Braille at the blind school. But I had all these accessibility devices that kind of I'm turning Braille into a, a dying art. But um, I've been I've been preaching the you know triumph over tragedy and success through struggle thing for four years, and, and it seems that somebody wanted me to put my money where my mouth was, prove it all over again. The um, obviously we're talking to you now. So the the solution was the cochlear implant, and explain to us. We've got just about a minute before the next break, but explain to us that that in effect creates a digital signal back to your ear. How does that work? That's correct. It's not a hearing aid. It does sit on the top of your earlobe uh, like a hearing aid, but it's got this tether connected to a, a magnet that connects. You know, to do the actual implant under the skin that has an electrode that then runs right into the cochlea bone and right directly to the auditory nerve. And it sends uh, this digital signal where a hearing aid uh, just amplifies what its microphones pick up. The CI, the cochlear implant, uh, processor picks up with the microphones, the audio signal turns, digitizes it, and sends it right to that nerve. So uh, my brain kind of has to learn 
how to hear in an entirely different format, like going analog to digital. So um, the sound seems to explain kind of difficult. It's as though you, you know, what I hear is if you call somebody and they're at a restaurant and they put their phone on speaker mode and lay it down in the center of the table, it picks up everything. And it's not definitely not like the same thing as talking to somebody face to face, but it's way better than the alternative. Sure. And the technology is getting better. Ladies and gentlemen, this is your host, Ben Bueller Garcia. We're speaking with Aaron Hale. Not too long thereafter, Aaron returned to his roots and he was in the kitchen cooking what he loved doing. And his wife, Michaela, noticed for the first time that he was smiling. And that was the beginning of the next chapter in his life. Stick around, ladies and gentlemen. Check out EODFudge.com. We'll be back more with Aaron Hale in just a second. Welcome back to American Warrior Radio, ladies and gentlemen. This is your host, Ben Bueller Garcia. We're speaking with Aaron Hale. Aaron is just an uh, amazingly inspirational story. Was blind, is blind, lost his hearing for a while, but now thanks to a cochlear implant, he got his hearing back. But he was still looking for a second mission. He still wanted to be the best recalibrated warrior that he could be. And he was in the kitchen cooking. He started off his Navy career as a cook. And your wife noticed you smiling. And you started making, apparently, your always the best fudge in the world, Aaron. And as I understand the story, there was so much fudge stacking up that your wife started sneaking it out of the house. Pro- probably not a difficult chore with a blind guy, right? Yeah, you don't have to be real stealthy around a blind deaf guy. <laughs> the truth is, you know, it, it wasn't as though you just, you know, get the implant, turn it on, and you start hearing again. It was over half a year of waiting and tuning in. They had to wait for the infection to clear up before they would do one ear, the more damaged right ear. And that didn't work. It was too damaged. And then I had to wait for the other surgery to heal and then tune it in. And then it was constantly tweaking until I could even, it was was well over six months, seven months until I could understand another human voice. And in that time, I was I was there sitting in my, my kitchen. I had even lost my vestibular balance, that inner ear gyro. I couldn't get on my treadmill. I couldn't listen to my audio books or podcasts. So that's when I, again, it was one of those things where you had to say, I can't change this. And I had to start looking for what can I do? You know, why is this happening for me? What can I learn from this? So I realized that I can still cook, and the holidays were coming. Thanksgiving was right on the corner. I started cooking like crazy. And, yes, I started making a lot of fudge. I knew I could make fudge ahead of time, put it in the freezer, and then, you know, pull it out at the right time. But, yes, I was making far too much. I was just having a good time. (laughs) She noticed that I was finally smiling after half a year. That's when she started giving her way, and friends and neighbors started coming back and asking if they could buy some more for a birthday or baby shower. You know, this capitalist entrepreneur and me said, well, of course you may. And all of a sudden, a business was born. Extraordinary delight for EODFudge.com. That's, I tell you, I, 
A, I love fudge. Now, I'll, I'll be honest right now. My wife, Erin, has got me on a low-carb diet, so I can't partake. But uh, I can send it as gifts for birthdays. My brother loves fudge, so I'm going to buy buy some fudge. And my producer's giving me the eyes. Hey, I want some, too. So let's talk a little bit about the entrepreneurship. It's hard enough as an entrepreneur. I mean, it takes grit. It takes tenacity. But Ben gets a dumb question every show, so just real quick. How did... I can't picture my mind's eye, Aaron, how you even do this. I mean, I cook a lot, and it involves measurement, the right temperature. Logistically, how do you even do this? Well, the first thing is to, to get a business off the ground, a lot of it is for an entrepreneur is just sheer force of will. And you got to build this thing from your dream. And that's what we did. We, for hours, yeah, 12, 14 hours a day, I was, I was in the kitchen cooking fudge, batch after batch, and my wife and her friends would come over, and they would do the weighing, you know, the scale and cutting and packaging it, and it was a lot of sweat and toil. It was pretty funny. In fact, out in my garage, you know, I built this great home gym, and I've got a stationary bike next to a treadmill, next to a rower, and then next to a shrink wrap machine. Uh, so <laughs> it's just how the, the small business starts, and then you you then you know you have to scale and delegate and elevate, and that's when you start building the team. It came to that that point where it was we needed to move out of this house and into a commercial kitchen, and that's when we moved into a sixty thousand square foot commercial facility. And, now, uh, the home kitchen is an R&D lab. I tell you, Aaron, my wife accuses me of, of cooking without tasting. But for a while, that I don't know if you do this anymore, and I don't do this stuff you kids do, but you had a, a TikTok channel that was called Cooking Without Looking. <laughs> yes. Uh, during the COVID time, we uh, couldn't leave the house much. and it, we, it, we do live in Florida, so it was a little more. We had some time on our hands. My wife just put a camera, put her phone in front of my face and said, start cooking and start talking. And all of a sudden, Aaron Hale's Cook Without Looking was born. And we were, we were producing you know, uh, something every single day. Now, it definitely takes a lot of effort to produce a daily, even 60-second TikTok. But it was a lot of fun. They have something that you know, my wife and I can do together. And, of course... You know, you're building a story, you're building a brand, building reputation that people can get behind. You also, Aaron, I want to, folks, look up the Point of Impact podcast with Aaron Hale. Uh, that's something you started, I think, relatively recently and lots of inspirational stories in there. And I think on one of them I was listening to, you talked about after you were injured, you went back to speak to some fellow EOD techs. And you talked, you mentioned the long, lonely walk towards danger but one of your, and you're also an inspirational speaker. Folks can, can book you there at uh, eodfudge.com to come speak to their groups. But you talked about how, you know, people shouldn't let their excuses hold them back. They should turn them into reasons. Can you expound on that thought for us a little bit? Absolutely. And this is something that I try to explain to my oldest, who is now 12 years old, and a phenomenal boy. There's reasons we tell ourselves and others, and there's excuses. And the difference between it, and I, I ask him from time to time, you know, he'll come to me and say, I didn't get the trash cans down before the, you know, the garbage tank was collected. 
And, and he'll, he'll say, I, well, I had practice and I had homework. And was that a reason or an excuse? And excuses are lines we tell ourselves to let ourselves off the hook and not feel guilty in front of others. But the truth is, you know, a reason is just information. Reason is something we can take and learn from and do better, you know, with next time. We all have failures. We all uh, make mistakes. But if we give ourselves, if we make excuses, then we don't learn from it. We don't go, we don't move anywhere. If we give ourselves reasons, if we, if we find out what the reasons are for something, then we can, we can grow. So, so really with the proper mindset, this is my interpretation, with the proper mindset, failures shouldn't be an anchor that holds us down. It should be some, a learning experience that becomes a balloon that lifts us up again. Absolutely. Aaron, I, I tell you what, we're down to about three minutes here. I want to see what other advice you would give to aspiring entrepreneurs, whether they're civilians out there, whether they're, they're veterans. Um, in addition to EOD Fudge, you're also now working on becoming a real estate magnet, which is pretty cool. But what things for folks out there that they need to hear today that um, they need to be reminded of? You know, first, just if you get in line with the reasons and excuses, is that you know, failure is expected. Don't be afraid of failure. You know, everybody's afraid of it, and they don't they feel shame or guilty, and they keep them from even attempting in the first place. But an entrepreneur um, and a warrior, you know, a service member, a veteran, they know that uh, you know we're going to fall down with how many times we get up and how many how much we can gain from you know feeling that pain of falling down. It's how much we can learn, and not just. You know, what we learn. In fact, it goes back to when I said, why is this happening to me? The proper mindset is, why is this happening for me? And you can take a step further and say, why is this happening for me so that I can teach others? And that's the whole reason for point of impact is that we all want to grow and become our best selves because we have a responsibility to our family, our, our brothers and sisters in arms, our employees, employers, you know, if, every all stakeholders in our lives. But we also want to become better so that we can show others how they can get past their obstacles, their difficulties, their challenges in life. And that's one of the greatest things, one of the greatest gifts we can give our community it depends on Aaron, very inspirational words. I can't wait to catch up with you again and see how things are going. I will order some fudge. And uh, ladies and gentlemen, check out eodfudge.com. You can also look up the Point of Impact podcast and also pay a visit to buildinghomesforheroes.org. They were a critical part of, of Aaron's story. Aaron, thank you so much for spending time with our listeners today. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me on, Ben. Well, and keep me in mind if there's anything else I can do to support. Don't forget, ladies and gentlemen, you can find this podcast and over 500 others at AmericanWarriorRadio.com or on your favorite podcast platform, whatever it is that you use. Please share these important messages. You just heard just an amazing, inspirational story, something we can all learn from. Until next time, all policies and procedures are remaining in place. Take care. You've been listening to American Warrior Radio. Archived episodes may be found at AmericanWarriorRadio.com or your favorite podcast platform.